Hello, and a happy and peaceful new year to you. Well, one can but hope and pray. This is the 59th episode of our podcast, which was first published on Thursday the 22nd of December, but was then only available to subscribers of the podcast on Patreon. We're very grateful to all of those who've signed up over the last couple of weeks. As you know, we don't take advertising, and we'd like to keep it that way. And we have no sponsors, though we would not be averse to having the right one. Going forwards, all paid members will be the first to access the podcast, as well as receiving my weekly blog for 50p a week. I hope you think that's a bargain. And it's easy to sign up at patreon.com forward slash bwatch. The link can also be found in the description of this program on your podcast platform. So, as this podcast was the last one recorded in 2023, we thought we'd look back over the last 12 months and see which of our interviews have been the most downloaded after 30 days of publication. Which do you think they were? Sir Mark Thompson, Tony Hall, Andrew Neal, Roger Mosey, Ruth Rishar or Samir Ahmed, perhaps? You can find out who it was at the end of this podcast. We decided to look ahead as well as back on the air in broadcasting journalism, though 2023 brought a new BBC chair, presenter controversies, wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, and widespread allegations of a lack of impartiality. Who better to chew over these issues than Stuart Purvis, a former editor of Channel 4 News? He went on to become ITN's chief executive, and then the poacher turned gamekeeper. The now Professor Purvis served as one of the content regulators at Ofcom and oversaw standards cases involving the BBC between 2007 and 2010. In 2015, he was a member of the BBC Charter Review Advisory Group and has been a non-executive director of Channel 4, among many, many other things. Well, welcome to the podcast, uh, profpurvis.com, uh, the name of your wonderful <laughs> and very interesting blog. Uh, Stuart Purvis, thanks very much for joining us. Um, we're going to review the BBC's year, but we're going to start, if I, we may, by looking forward a little and looking at what some have called, or I mentioned in my blog, as two unexploded devices waiting for the BBC in, probably in January. The first one is about whether Samir Shah will become chair of the BBC, the committee, uh, the uh, Commons Backbench Committee, which uh, interrogates proposed chairs of the BBC, were not too impressed by him and have called him back in January. What do you make all of all of that, Stuart? It's unusual. I mean, we've had candidates actually being effectively rejected by uh, select committees, but very rarely. And when we've seen them being blessed, if you like, immediately. What we've got here is them saying that uh, Dr. Shah did not sufficiently demonstrate the strength and character that is needed to challenge the executive leadership of the BBC. Well, I suppose you interpret that as, you know, the, the very things which most of us in the media think are a qualification, the fact that he knows the business so well and knows the BBC so well, may mean in their minds that he's too close to the BBC. I mean, I thought in his evidence, he, he went out of his way to get across pretty quickly and pretty clearly his views on, on Gary Lineker's tweets, but on a lot of other questions where they were 
inviting him to give a, you know, a considered view. He, he didn't really want to do it. And he kept saying, you know, well, I've read about this and I've read about that. And I thought, well, you've only read about Gary Lineker's tweets, but that hasn't stopped you having a view on them. But all these other things that you've only read about, you don't seem to want to talk about. Well, I thought it was rather strange that he, ex- I mean, on Gary Lineker, I thought what he would say, the easy way out, which would be, I'm absolutely 100% between the new rules on, um, uh, on impartiality. I'm passionate about impartiality. As whether not Gary Lineker has broken these guidelines, it's up to the Director General to report. But let me just assure you that that's one of the first things I'll deal with when I get in. I'm very, very uh, strong on this issue or something like that. Instead, he went to say that I think actually Gary Lineker has broken the guidelines. The second thing... Well, can I just say, say, Roger, what you've just said is yet more evidence that you should have got the job, but there we are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's very kind. I can't help the chance. The second thing, and pushed by John Nicholson, who was a BBC um, interviewer, not a bad one, judging by his performance, but now he's a Scott Nutt MP, was um, trying to get uh, Samir to comment on the alleged intervention by Sir Robbie Gibb, former Director of Communications at uh, Downing Street, but of course uh, now a non-executive director of the BBC and previously a BBC executive. And it is alleged that um, uh, Robbie Gibb, while a non-executive uh, director of the BBC, interfered or attempted to influence, shall we say, the appointment of the new chair of Ofcom. Samir was not to be drawn on that, it is contentious, but he was asked about the principle involved, that if this had happened, would it be compatible with the role of a non-executive director of the BBC? Now, I thought that was a no-brainer. The answer is, if it happened, and he doesn't have to commit himself, Yes, it is wrong. It is a conflict of interest. Samir would not, and he was pressed and pressed about this, would not say anything. I wonder why. Well, uh, I think he has said that he is a friend of Robbie Gibb, has he not? Um, And that may be a factor in all this. I I think we should give full credit here to Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian, who, having seen a reference in Nadine Doris's book to this uh, Gibgate, as I think it's sometimes called, has been constantly asking the BBC very simple questions about did this happen or not, and never getting very straight answers. And that's why I think it was entirely logical and proper that, that John Nicholson and, and indeed I think one other MP should raise it. And yet again, uh, even admitting that uh, Samir is not yet in the job, get a kind of non-answer on this. When, as you said, I mean, those of us who've been involved in governance of matters of some kind would have a very clear view on what was and was not the role of a non-executive director. I mean, he doesn't have to pass judgment on when it happened. No, absolutely not. It's a passing judgment on the principle. And the other question he didn't answer or or dodged in a way was these allegations that uh, Sir Robbie Gibb went to the Newsnight office and, um, well, a lot, uh, he clearly did, and he clearly did talk about impartiality. Whether you use a word like lecture them is another matter. What wasn't clear to me was whether he did so with the approval of the Director-General or with somebody else with him of a BBC executive. Because if he went by himself as a non-executive to, as it were, lecture Newsnight on impartiality, that would be, I would have thought very simply, uh, the wrong thing to have done. I, uh, would you agree with that? Well, I can, I can give you a very clear uh, version of that. When I was on the Channel 4 board, I suppose I occupied a kind of equivalent role to Robbie Gibb in the sense that I was the member with a particular background in news and current affairs. And it, it was made very, very clear to me by the, the, the chairman, Terry Burns, that if I had a view, and I did have a view from time to time about the output, it was my role was to talk to uh, the, the chief executive or the, the director of programmes or himself 
and not to have a, any direct connection with the programme. Um, and I would never have dreamt of mm. going to the Channel 4 News offices <laughs> to give them a lecture or even a hint of my views on their output. So that's a very simple principle that um, yeah. uh, Sabir could have endorsed without saying that I can't comment on the individual issue, I don't know the circumstances. Yeah. Let me say there's a principle I do not want and I don't think non-executive directors should be in t- going directly to programmes. Absolutely. And he didn't. Now, maybe that... I mean, I think he probably will be confirmed, but if he is, um, one of the first things he's going to have to face, as you have pointed out in your delicious uh, profpurvis.com, there's a second plug, but it deserves it, is is about the Princess Diana affair, the Martin Bashir interview, uh, and the usual question is about who knew what when, which often turns out to the most lethal thing. And you've cooperated with the journalist uh, Andy Webb, who has led the um, investigation here and the pressure on the BBC. And the BBC has been ordered to deliver a number of emails, which it has been, shall we say, uh, reluctant to uh, reveal. Uh, up until now, we expect those in uh, in early January, I think. Now, what is clear? Uh, there are two questions, aren't there? Was there a cover-up at the time? And the second question is: Was the BBC investigation? Uh, which he'd conducted uh, and delivered the results to Lord Dyson, adequate, thorough, and so on. On the first question, was there a cover-up at the time, uh, you've revealed the fact that, or it's been revealed, the fact that the head of current affairs at the time, who interviewed Martin Bashir after the interview, discovered that Martin Bashir had indeed lied about the circumstances in which he'd got the interview. No, I think there are two particular episodes that, have been focused on. Lord Dyson focused very much on who knew what when at the time of the original interview and the the immediate follow-up inquiry into Martin Bash's activities. What Andy Webb is focusing particularly now is on what you might call cover-up two, if there is such a thing, which which is the events of the autumn of 2020, when basically Lord Spencer notified the BBC that he wanted there to be an independent inquiry because of things he discovered. And there is a period uh, there where there are an average of 50 emails a day circulating within the BBC on what to do about this situation. Now, my merit is particularly vivid because I got a phone call from the Today programme one morning and saying there's these new allegations about who knew what when and I said there should be an independent inquiry, which actually was actually what Earl Spencer had said. And to which the answer was, well, Martin Bashir is ill, so there can't be an independent inquiry. To which my answer was, well, that is complete nonsense. I mean, I've no idea where he's ill or not, but surely you don't have to wait for him. You can get on and look at the documents. And so unless the BBC successfully challenges this order to hand these documents over, we're going to see 3,000 more emails which will show exactly who in the BBC was saying what to whom about the time when they were being asked to have an independent inquiry. And that could be extremely interesting. Interesting because uh, the present Director General will have been involved. There is the historical instance of did he lie at the time, but, you know, Director General was there when Dyson uh, was gathering all the evidence was presented to Dyson. I mean, my reading of this, I was told by a senior executive, very senior executive, that when they went through the files uh, of that period, uh, they had effect, they were strangely empty leading some people to suggest they'd been cleansed. And then, fortunately, people like Tim Gardner, who was head of current affairs at the time, though just leaving to go to Channel 5, had kept 
a copy of his own handwritten note that he'd uh, sent to uh, Tony Hall, the then, or the office of Tony Hall, the then um, director of news and current affairs, um, making it clear that Martin Bashir had lied uh, and had admitted to Tim Gardner who, he, that he'd lied and that Tim was extremely cross about it. So we know that. Um, so that'll be extremely interesting. But I think the one thing that starts to disturb me about the wider story is that Earl Spencer, and it is believed members of the royal family, try to suggest that in some way Princess Diana only gave the interview because she was misled. And that in some way this interview led, set in train a pattern of events to lead to a Princess Diana's death in the car crash in Paris. I think that's most unlikely. And in terms of her desire to give the interview, it was obvious she wished to do that. She'd given interviews, she'd given sound tapes to various people. She'd tried to get Max Hastings to write about it. I mean, she was going to give the interview. The question is, to whom? Yeah, just into, on that, I have a personal eyewitness evidence because she once told me personally that she wanted to give an interview to Panorama. I got to know her quite well making a documentary about it and the documentary project was going extremely well and when one day while we were filming she said, you know what I'd really like to do is to be on Panorama. So I totally agree with you. <laughs> the, the, the giving of an interview to Panorama was actually a long-held ambition of hers. Quite the specifics which led to that particular interview at that particular moment is a different issue. Well, the, yes, uh, you're wondering why, in the light of all these difficulties, Samir wants the job. It's not going to be a, uh, an easy spring. Uh, but, of course, the other thing which is rumbling quite significantly in the background is, is charter renewal, l- the licence fee, and so on. Um, there are one or two things, I think, that sort of escape people um, when they're discussing alternatives, the licence fee, and whatever. I mean, I, my personal view is there needs to be a review of what public service broadcasting first, then you decide how best to deliver it, then you decide how to pay for it, and then you decide what, how much to pay. But people seem to be neglecting the fact that there's a real still digital divide in this country. So if you move immediately the BBC or very significant parts of your output onto digital only, something like up to a quarter of households, domestic households, will not have access to its programming. And that seems to be missing from the debate. I absolutely agree. And again, slightly referring back to my own time on the Channel 4 board, Whenever the the then executives of Channel 4 were constantly saying, we need to get everything we do classified as public service broadcasting, even if it's only online, I was always slightly suspicious about that because that seemed to me that once you did that, you gave them the opportunity to take off uh, terrestrial television or other forms of uh, linear television and move these programmes to some form of non-linear uh, broadcasting where, to be absolutely honest, it might be quite difficult to discover them. So I have always thought there is a the threat to certain genres if in the name of appearing to broaden their reach and broaden their, uh, their, their, their sort of impact, they actually end up with less reach and less impact. <laughs> of course, that's what the new media bill will give the broadcasters, the public service broadcasters, the freedom to do, to move more online and away from broadcast. It also doesn't specify, the new media bill, what the, uh, if you like, uh, protected areas are. It just says... There has to be sort of full range of things. It doesn't specify current affairs, doesn't specify science, doesn't specify religion. And the other thing which is strange about this bill, and I think it reflects the general attitude of government, it seems to me, towards this, is that it's not proposed that Ofcom, if this bill goes through, as it probably will, will have to monitor whether or not the public service broadcasters fulfil what they're promised to do. Nobody will be recording this. Now, what do you think the way Ofcon is approaching general broadcasting matters? Because I understand, I understand, I may be wrong, that Ofcom specifically asked government 
not to make it monitor the public service output in the future? Well, I think the origin of all this, Roger, lies in the, the final days of the ITC, the Independent Television Commission, because until the Communications Act of 2003 and the creation of Ofcom, the ITC would deliver a verdict on every licensee's output. Uh, now, you know, they did well on this, badly on that, and it was a highly subjective document and created constant disputes and rows. And people said, you know, we can't carry on doing this. And, it, and from that moment on, it seems to me that the regulator, now Ofcom, has been in retreat from any kind of monitoring uh, of public service broadcasting, which involves any kind of, uh, you know, qualitative judgment. And I, I, I understand that, but I can't see why they can't continue to have quantitative uh, <laughs> an analysis. Um, and, and that's what I think, for instance, the, you know, the PSB documentation, which Ofcom currently creates, is pretty much the only place you can work out what public service broadcasters have done. And we need that to be protected in the future. And if media bill goes through, it won't be. The other thing about Ofcom is the speed, or lack of speed perhaps, it um, shows in its response to complaints that are raised. I mean, I think GB News, there, what, there are, certainly we're in the teens now of complaints about it and allegations that it's um, not behaved properly. What's going on there? Why does it take so long to come to these conclusions? I mean, for example, in one instance, there was the um, two existing uh, MPs, Tory MPs, one is now back in the government, interviewing their own Chancellor of the Exchequer. Fairly clear breach, I would have thought. Yet we still await a judgment, don't we? No, we, we have got the ju judgment on that. And they have been found to have breached the, the guidelines. But not in the way that you and I might have thought. Ofcom apparently believes there was nothing inherently wrong in two Conservative MPs interviewing a Tory minister. It's the way they handled the other views uh, that ought to have been recorded in that programme. And this is becoming, um, I mean, to be honest, this is becoming a saga that's becoming a soap opera. And I fear there is a real muddle going on inside Ofcom as to what to do about it. So much so that I'm in the unusual position of actually saying that when Ofcom earlier this week uh, found that, Ofcom, that, that GB News had breached the rules, I don't agree with them. I think they've kind of flipped from one to the other. I mean, basically, uh, GB News have been running a campaign saying save cash. Uh, and Ofcom said that, that was, they shouldn't be running campaigns of that kind. My mind goes back to Sky News at previous general elections running campaigns saying there must be a debate on politics, which, you know, was not the policy of some parties of the day. Therefore, they were effectively running a, a public campaign against a political party's policy. So, I, I mean, I'm baffled by that other than they wanted to find GB News guilty of something. <laughs> I'm baffled by it all because if you were running GB News, and it's an unlikely prospect, but one of the first things you would do is you'd go to Ofcom and you'd say, um, look, we are trying to do more opinionated news. Can we just sort out exactly what we can and cannot do? Because we obviously don't want to be in a conflict, but we want to go ahead with our stated purposes of providing an alternative viewpoint from a obviously from a right-wing perspective, can we just clear this up? And then you'd employ, if you're running, you'd have that conversation, then you employ somebody on your board specifically to monitor this and look after it. It was a really experienced professional to negotiate your way through. There's no evidence of that. So I don't think GB News, for what I can see, and I have appeared on it once or twice, really knows what they should be doing in this area, and Ofcom isn't telling them. 
Well, it isn't ever quite as simple as that. I mean, but Ofcom prefers not to have what it would call pre-transmission conversations. It doesn't want to be a clearinghouse. I mean, in the advertising industry, for instance, there is a clearinghouse for ads. You can take your ad there and they say, is this okay or not? They don't want to create such a thing for programs. They want to have post-transmission judgments. But there are, of course... I'm talking here not about an individual yeah, instance, yeah, yes, but about it, the general exactly. approach. No, that's totally fair. Which is why there is something called the guidance. So each, each piece of Ofcom regulation has an attached piece of guidance. Now, the trouble is that the guidance doesn't help, the current guidance doesn't help GB News through any of these issues. It's out of date. It isn't kept up to speed. And therefore, um, and I sort of understand why GB News this week sort of slightly put their hands up and saying, don't think we know where we are. Now, what I think the real issue there now, Roger, is in the new year, we will get a series of adjudications about the issues which I think are at the core of this, which is partly can politicians present programmes, but I think more importantly, what is the right balance in a political discussion between different views? And those are the judgments I think we should really focus on, particularly in the run-up to a general election. Is it possible in the run-up to, while an election campaign is underway, for sympathisers for one party or another to night after night have the majority view in a programme? I honestly don't know what Ofcom's view on that, and I await their decision with interest. And just going back briefly to charter renewal and the process that will start going again, we've, we discussed the problems that of switching significantly or completely to digital, which will be required if you're going to run a subscription service. We can also presumably rule out advertising for the BBC because it would make it impossible for other broadcasters, commercial broadcasters, to probably survive. Radio 2, for example, would presumably get a lot of advertising. If those two things are out... Where do you think we... I mean, where are we on the licence fee and on the charter, do you think? What are the, what, what are the options for the future that are realistic? Well, there are... Uh, I mean, you know, for instance, Michael, Lord Gray gave an interesting talk at the Voice Listener and Viewer the other day. He's, he admitted it was outside his brief, actually, as the chair of Ofcom. But in a personal view, he was opposed to the licence fee because it re- was regressive. I mean... The honest truth is it's always been regressive. There's always been a flat fee. And, and, and if after all these years somebody can find a way of solving that problem and, and allowing richer people to pay more than poor people, then that, that, that there's an, that's an excellent idea. Then you get the issue of collection. What is the best way of collection? But, I, Roger, I think you have begun to make some impact here on this argument of what do you want the BBC to do? Let's decide that first before we decide what we're collecting for. And I, I do find people sort of say, you know, saying that now. So you, you're, congratulations to you. But I think the, the issue which is... from I, Last time around, I was on the government's advisory committee on charter renewal. And what I observed in private was the wish of the government of the day, and we we're talking really about John Whittingdale's period in particular, uh, George Osborne, having taken a ch- great chunk of the BBC's e- effective income by uh, uh, the question of uh, licences for, el- for the elderly, John Whittingdale was looking to, do an- to take another chunk out of the BBC, but wasn't quite sure how. And basically, our role as what was described by one observer as assistant gravediggers of the BBC was to try to find some other new way of doing it. And the way that was being thought of was somehow saying the BBC can do this what we would regard as the core BBC activities, you could define that as informing education. And the entertainment bit can somehow be separate. And that argument never came into effect on my watch, as they say, on that committee. But I still hear it being talked of to this day. And, of course, streaming would make that easier. 
One of the problems with subscription in the status quo until streaming was that the when Greg Dyke was the uh, director general of BBC, he set up he helped to set up digital television DTT in a way which it made it extremely difficult to uh, use technology to to sub- make subscriptions work, uh, and that was a sort of poison pill, if you like, that Greg left in the system. But streaming allows a much easier way for people to get subscription services and to pay for subscription services. So I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm only you know looking ahead here and guessing, that at some point there will be an argument of what do you get for the licence fee and what do you have to pay for extra via a streaming service? Is it, you know, to take the holy grail, does Strictly come off BBC One and go on to something called BBC Entertainment, which you only get on a streaming service? Now, Grade in his speech the other day was opposed to that. But I think that's the only material difference you could make to the way the BBC licence fee, whatever you call it, is structured. Unless you just, you know, I, I can't think of any other, other option. There's so much enormous public support for them for what the BBC does in general. But I think if you were a Conservative government, who knows whether there will be a Conservative government at the time of Charter and you, you would be looking to do something more to lessen the ability of the BBC to increase, you know, not to increase its market share. You'd like to do something to decrease its market share. Can we? I'd love to pursue that, but but I just want finally for us to talk about the the criticism of the BBC over its Middle East, uh, Israel, Gaza conflict. I'm being quite well. I, you know, it's difficult to put yourself in the shoes of somebody, uh, an Israeli citizen or a Jew around the world who knows parents, grandparents killed in the concentration camps, and know the history of anti-Semitism and so on, and the shock of that raid by Hamas, that appalling terrorist raid. However, I have been surprised after a while about the intensity of the criticism of the BBC, and there you have a former senior BBC executive like Danny Cohen attacking the BBC and the Telegraph and saying it's institutionally, I think you had a phrase, you know, anti-Israel or or anti-Semitic in some ways. Have you been surprised about the violence of the attitude to BBC coverage? And do you think that coverage has been not mistaken, it obviously has occasionally been, but deeply flawed? I don't think it's been deeply flawed, no. I think a mistake was made when, to avoid the word terrorist, and I think there is a, you know, a very legitimate argument for avoiding that word terrorist, the word militant was used to describe Hamas. And that just sat so awkwardly with the horrific details of what happened on, on that day. And, you know, I think if I was a member of the Jewish committee or a supporter of Israel, I would be shocked to hear that people who went around murdering, cutting people's heads off, raping people, were militants, as if it was some, you know, sort of left-wing trade union. And I think the BBC took too long to sort that issue out, and I think that became a kind of spark for further outrage. Now, I don't think that level of outrage uh, uh, is justified, and I, I go back as far as 2005 when Having left ITN after many years, I was asked by the BBC governors to be part of a review into their coverage of Israel and Palestinians. And I have to say, what we went to Israel and I was astonished at the animosity towards the BBC in Israel and at the animosity towards the BBC in Jewish communities in Britain. So this is 2005. This is not a new story. But the horror of what happened uh, on October 7th, and and the BBC's, I think, misguided attempt to try to be to appear to be neutral, have created this storm. And look, I live in a very Jewish area of North London, and and my neighbours are shocked 
They're appalled. They, they're demanding that we, you know, the good people of Hampstead should condemn the BBC, etc., which I'm not prepared to do. I think the BBC reporting has been outstanding in many ways. I commend Jeremy Bowen. And back in 2005, we did actually say in our report, could we have more of Jeremy Bowen, please? And we've certainly had a lot more of Jeremy Bowen. That's excellent. I also think the BBC's provided a lot of excellent background analysis and history so I'm going to stand up for the BBC on its coverage of Israel Gaza, having said that I think they made one crucial mistake at the very beginning. And I wondered whether at the beginning, whether, was, whether also a small, uh, small cause of some difficulty early on, was with the BBC slimming down in news, the old problem is you don't want to, you want voluntary redundancies. The people who tend to take voluntary redundancies are older people, and therefore in a crisis like this, if you don't have really experienced people at the top who've been through similar crises, it often takes a little while to, to as it were, for younger journalists to quite understand some of those issues involved, and particularly a younger generation, I think, of journalists, which some of whom do believe that they should be allowed to be campaigning, and some of whom do, I think, need to think more heavily about impartiality. So I think that might be a factor, but I will share your view generally. I think it's been superb, but... You find uh, it's one of those things where the BBC is trying to remain impartial, but both sides demand it steps down on their side. And the pressures on people within the BBC and the staff must be considerable. But I don't see, I hope I don't see, any wavering in the BBC about this. They're going to hold their line. I hope they admit some mistakes, but I think they're going to hold the line, don't you? I think they are, and I think uh, Samir Shah indicated he would like to have a discussion about the use of the word, non-use of the word terrorist, and I, t- I think that's totally appropriate for an incoming chair. But I think there's one other element, Roger, and again, apologies for going back to 2005, was that what we found in our review of the coverage at the time was, in the words of the chair, Sir Quentin Thomas, it lacked an understanding and awareness of what it is like to be occupied. And I think what has happened in the in time since that the BBC has quite properly increased its coverage of what it is like to live in the West Bank or to live in Gaza. And I actually went to Gaza as part of this review. And, you know, one day in Gaza is enough to leave you with some pretty powerful memories. And I think the BBC has done its best to say what it is like to live in the West Bank in Gaza. And I don't think it's got much thanks from that, from those who are natural supporters of Israel. But I think that was a part of the story that had to be told and has to be told. Though, to pick up, I think one of your guests recently, uh, David Abramovich, wondered whether we needed to know more about the conditions under which the BBC reporting from Gaza. I thought that was a very fair point. We know sometimes we are, you know, one can hear particularly BBC Arabic reporters in Gaza being asked questions, and you do wonder what freedom of speech they have whilst being in Gaza under Hamas's control. So these are all all part of the mix, I think. And the reason, it, if the BBC, in trying to cover the story more comprehensively, so it has created more criticism, then I, for one, would say I think that change in increasing their coverage was justified. Suppose I'd love to go on and talk more to you, but thank you very much for joining us. And just a reminder again, uh, profpervis.com is where you want to go if you really want to get some inside information. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roger. Our thanks to Stuart Purvis. And finally, the answer to the question of which were our top three podcast downloads 30 days after publication in 2023. In third place is Katie Searle, the former director of BBC News programmes, who discussed the impact of cuts on the BBC. 
In second place is Paul Hughes, whom you may remember was the former director of the BBC Singers and who gave a very emotional response to the proposed cuts in classical music, which, if they haven't been cancelled, have been deferred. But in first place is Simon Mayo, who spoke to us the day before Ken Bruce had his final programme broadcast on Radio 2. So that's it for this episode. Please consider signing up and getting the next podcast hot off the press. And as you know, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.